Well, church, this is our 40th anniversary, and we have the privilege of having uh, among us in this worship primarily some charter members who've been here for 40 years. And I'm just going to ask them to stand as I call, call their names. Well, I don't need to list Ruth Appel, uh, Dave and Sammy Sadler, Jim and Betty Pierce. You guys stand. Rosie Cumby, Jay Cumby. You guys just stand. Just uh, thank you for your faithfulness very much. I've been here a long time, and some of these people have not aged much, so that's a pretty good, pretty good. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, as we study this uh, model prayer and the life of prayer, and uh, ask how we can be the people God has called us to be. I said last week that uh, the kingdom, praying that the kingdom would come and his will be done, involves this from a confessional statement called the Heidelberg Catechism, that, that we renounce our own will our own way of thinking and bring it under the authority of Scripture, we obey without murmuring because God's way is good. So that's repentance. We renounce. We see the horror of sin, the odious nature of sin, the, the, the bad results of sin. We grieve over that, but we also see the beauty of Christ. And so we turn from our sin and we pursue the Lord. Uh, that's what it means to walk in repentance. And we do that because God's way is good. And I mentioned last week Psalm 19 that says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. That the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. I'm simple. That the, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. And the command of the Lord is radiant, giving light to the eyes. And then on down, two verses later, the psalmist says, By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there's great reward. So I need warnings. See, God's word is, is like uh, warning signs on the road. It says, don't go here. Extreme precipice that will plunge you to your death. Don't go here. Don't take this road. Don't do that. And so God's word is a warning to keep us on the right life, on the right path. And many of us can name people, all of us can name people if you're a little, little bit older, who have gone through warning sign after warning sign after warning sign, and now they're reaping the horrific fruit of disobedience. And it's a, it's a sorrow. By them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there's great reward. There's joy. See, God gets the worship, we get the joy. God in his triune glory gets the exaltation, we get the peace. God gets the, the, the centrality of our lives, and we get his shalom poured into our lives. So there, there's warning, and there's, there's joy in keeping the, the word of the Lord. And so as we consider, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I had somebody draw this little diagram. Uh, you hit trials, according to James chapter 1. And you can either choose the route of faith or become a murmuring, disgruntled person. In fact, James chapter 1 says this. He says, consider pure joy, my brothers, whenever you encounter trials, you see, of many kinds. Because, you know, the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. You hit trials. So you, boom, you hit the door. Do you choose to honor God and to trust God? Or you start murmuring, be discontented and question the goodness of God. And then he says this, the writer of James says, 
If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given him. For, but let him ask in faith with not, not doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind to and fro. For that person must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord because he's double-minded, unstable in all that he does. Now, now hear me. Faith in this passage is not, do you believe in God? Faith is, do you believe the God of the Bible? Do you believe the God of the Bible is gloriously good, triune, and worthy of your trust? Do you trust God? So you see, faith is looking unto Christ. Faith is not something you muster up, I've got to have more faith, I've got to have more faith. You get more faith by looking to Christ, by glorying in Christ, by burying your life and your heart and your mind in the Scripture. One of my favorite theologians said this, that faith is a firm and certain knowledge of God's goodwill toward us, His Abba Father goodwill toward us, founded upon the reality of Christ and revealed to our minds and imprinted on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Faith is the firm conviction of God's benevolence towards us. God loves us. He wants our best. Clearly displayed in the promises and the work and the passion of Jesus and imprinted imprinted upon our hearts and our minds by the Holy Spirit of God through the Word of God. And so we believe God, we trust God, we look to Him, we depend upon Him. We do not doubt his goodness. There's an old statement that you've heard many times growing up. The ones who know the most are the most depressed. The ones who know the most are the most depressed. I was doing some study and came across the most depressed states in America. There, I got 10. I just saw a guy from West Virginia bow his head. Yes, you're there. Um, <laughs> So uh, among those states, I want to get them all, are West Virginia, Arkansas, Mississippi, the usual suspects, Tennessee, Michigan, Nevada, and a couple others. And after this Saturday night, you can add the great state of Georgia to that list. <laughs> Amen. So, I, you know, I've known a lot of Georgia fans, and two or three of them have been okay. Um, <laughs> But you just think about Georgia, the peach state. Give, give me a break. I mean, can, can you get that for me? <laughs> Forgive me, Lord. I, the, the, Georgia, thank you. Georgia, you know, Georgia, the peach state. We, we produce three times more peaches than Georgia. Do we go around saying, hey, we're the peach state? No. We're, hum, we're a humble people here in South Carolina. <laughs> no, just in real football's getting ready to start. I'm so excited. I talked to a brother the other day. I'll get back to the sermon in a second. I talked to a brother the other day, and he said, my wife told me, I'm already tired of football. <laughs> what do you do? Well, what's he going to do? He hadn't even started. Whew. He's going to need some counseling. But anyway, here we are. <laughs> so any, anyway, uh, this, in contradistinction to the ones who know the most and the most oppressed, I believe the ones biblically who know the most are the most joyful. The ones who biblically know the most are the most expectant. The ones who biblically know the most are the most trusted because we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We know that all things work together for the good of those who know the Lord and are called according to His purpose. We know that the one whom we have entrusted with our salvation will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
We know that our Savior is the way, the truth, and the life. We know that we've passed from death to life, from the power of Satan to the power of God. We know that those who trust Him are born again, not because of a father's decision or even a human decision, but born of God. We know these things. And so because of that, we trust in the Abba, fatherly goodness of God. We know, James chapter 1 says this, every good and perfect gift comes from above. Every one of them. From the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. God doesn't change. He is the same today, yesterday, and forever, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We know these things, church, and so we trust Him. We walk in faith that is the understanding of the benevolence of Abba Father toward us, vouchsafed in the person of Christ, applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And so we are glad. And so this, this, this trials, faith, belief going forward has a, a corporate dimension as well as an individual dimension. It has a family dimension as well as an individual dimension. I'm going to spend some time this morning talking about the corporate nature of praying that will be done on earth as it is in heaven as a community, as an aggregate of people. Our purpose statement as a church is this, equipping people to pursue Christ passionately to impact the culture. We equip people to think biblically, to, to, to renounce willful ways and to obey without murmuring God because He's good. So we equip people with Scripture, with, with a Christian world and life view, to, to pursue Jesus passionately, to, to, to love the Lord. I want to love the Lord with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's passion. And then to impact the culture as you, as you pursue the Lord with passion and, and excellence and allegiance and devotion. So you, you, we impact the culture. And so I'm going to give you some quotes here. This is from a document called The Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Article 15 is an incredible statement about the Christian and the social order. It's a confessional statement that we've adopted as a church. It says this, in part, all Christians are under obligation to seek to make the will of Christ supreme in their own lives and in human society. We bring Christ to bear in everywhere we go and everything we do. Later in the same article says this, every Christian should seek to bring industry, government, and society as a whole under the sway of the principles of righteousness, truth, and brotherly love. That's our calling, to go into the world, and whether it's in medicine or law or homemaking or education or auto mechanics, to, to bring the integrity and the grace and the mercy that's in us into our world by the way we live. And, and so we pray, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, there's, there's a man named B.B. Warfield who taught at Princeton for numerous decades. And this is what he said. It's in the worship guide. He said this. He's being, he's being graciously critical because he loved these people of a group of people called ultra-pietists. And the ultra-pietists said the only thing that matters is, is getting your life right with Jesus. And, and Warfield is saying absolutely positively that is we've got to preach the gospel everywhere we go. But... There's not one inch of all creation where Jesus Christ does not cry, this is mine. That's a statement by Abraham Kuyper, Prime Minister of the Netherlands, anyway. But this is what Warfield says. The earthly spheres of art and science, of literature and politics, 
of domestic and social economy are underestimated in value and significance by them. Okay. And are consequently not reformed and regenerated by the Christian principle. They say, let us rest in the wounds of Jesus, which is wonderful. Or to be converted and then go forth and convert others. And that seems to constitute the entire content of the Christian life for these people. And Warfield says, no believers are called to undertake the reformation of the world after the plan of God and his gradual transmutation into his kingdom in which his will shall be done even as in heaven. Now, now the issue is here, we've got to always keep the gospel, gospel central as we go. If, if we cure diseases and people do not come to faith in Christ, they still, if they have 20 years out of their life, they still spend an eternity away from the Lord in a place called hell. So we pursue excellence. I've got a little diagram here. Just. So, so what do we do? We repent daily, and we seek the empowering grace of Christ. We pray for revival, which is a supernatural work of God, and we do the daily obedience that God puts before us. We walk in daily obedience as we repent and as we pray for revival. And over all these things, we always preach the gospel. The gospel is always central, but we go and we pursue excellence. Quoting, the, again, the Baptist faith and message says this. He says, means and methods used for the improvement of society and the establishment of righteousness among men can be truly and permanently helpful only when they're rooted in the salvation that's found in Christ. So we preach Christ. But we also pursue excellence. I'll give you an example. There's a family from this church, dear people. Many of you know them. I won't call them a name because they're in a closed country where you cannot... Uh, go as a Christian uh, cross-cultural worker. And they both have advanced degrees. Had very good jobs here. Very marketable degrees. But because they have a deep love for Muslim people, they have volunteered to go to a, a university and to teach in a place that is hot several months out of the year like we've had this week. Where it's hard to build friendships where you have no, not many conveniences, where the aesthetic beauty is almost nil, to befriend fellow academicians and people in their neighborhood with the view of sharing the gospel of Jesus with them. Wow. Wow. That's what we're talking about. That, that as you're, you're calling and as you go, you take it out. You live it out. You live out the worldview you have in Christ. So I'm going to talk to you about several areas right now. I'm just going to go through them fast. This is probably an hour and a half. I'm going to do in 20 minutes or less. So 20 minutes. So just 25. Okay. So, so a man named Francis Schaeffer died in 1982. A, a defender of the Christian faith, a spokesman for the faith. Francis Schaeffer said this. He says, the operative world here is, it should, is inevitable, inevitably. He says, it, it is not just that they happen to bring forth different results, two worldviews, but it is absolutely inevitable they will bring forth different results. He's talking about a Christian world of life view that says there is a great God who made the heavens and the earth. 
and a materialistic worldview that says everything around us is just the impersonal plus time plus chance. There's no rhythm, there's no great God, and therefore there's no, there's no ultimate oughtness to life. And he said, inevitably, inevitably, you are going to live out your worldview. And I'm going to try to show you that to a degree this morning. Inevitably, and to one degree or another. Example number one, there's a professor at, at, at Princeton University, one of the top in every poll, one of the top three universities in our country, year after year, Princeton. is a professor of ethics at Princeton University, professor of ethics from Australia. His name is Peter Singer. Peter Singer just received last year the, from his home country, Australia, a companion of the Order of Australia. It's the highest award you can receive in Australia. It's the same as being knighted in Great Britain. Okay, Peter Singer, professor of ethics at Princeton, a school started by godly, Bible-believing Presbyterians. Okay, this is what he says. He's got a book entitled Practical Ethics. And let me just read one quote. I could read a hundred quotes. He says, human babies are not born self-aware or capable of grasping that they exist over time. They are not persons. And the life of a newborn is of less value than the life of a pig or a dog or a chimpanzee, close quote. So what Singer is, is arguing for is that really until you have self-awareness, you cannot be called a human being. He's argued that up until a certain point, some say two years, the parents should have the ability to terminate the life of their child. Now, we believe that life begins at conception. We believe life in the womb is sacred unto God. But this is going way beyond. This sounds like some type of dialogue from a Saturday Night Live skit from hell. It's horrible. That's the professor of ethics, listen, at Princeton. And so, so we, we say, you, you, I've heard he's a very nice guy, but somewhere down the line, his followers are going to live out this worldview that is horrific. They're already living it out. Example, another example. There was a leader of the last century, one of the key leaders in the world. <clears throat> he was an emperor for 50 years almost. If you went to his office in 1937, 38, 39 through 45, there would be two busts in his office. One, a bust of Napoleon, the other bust of Charles Darwin. Now, and he said he had those two busts because it represented conquest and conflict. Now, uh, of course, Napoleon, you know about Napoleon. Darwin, brilliant scientist, uh, believed in the survival of the fittest, that only the strong survive, and it's just this chain. And so, and, and this, this emperor lived that out. He was in charge of, of a country that for several years in the 1940s killed seven million Asians murdered them 10 million in China if you want to be nauseated just go get a book called the, called the rape of Nanking and about the tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of Chinese women that were brutally raped and how they would take babies and bayonet them as they came down Japanese soldiers who believed who believed that, that the Japanese were the greatest ethnicity in the world, especially in Asia, and who believed that if you are able to conquer people or if you surrendered, they were less than dogs, and they lived out that worldview. 
1937, right before the war began, the, uh, the government released this statement about Hirohito. It says this, the emperor is a deity incarnate, a deity incarnate who rules our country in union with the august will of the imperial ancestors. He is humanity manifested in deity. He said this, the imperial ancestors have manifested themselves in the person of the emperor who is their divine offspring, that the emperor in turn is one in essence with the imperial ancestors. Now pick up the quote here. That the emperor, Hirohito, is forever the fountainhead for the growth and development of his subjects and the country, and that he is endlessly a superb, august person. He's a deity. He can make no mistake. And so after the war, Douglas MacArthur came to Japan and did an incredible job reclaiming that country with the aid from America. It's an an unbelievable story. But shortly after he arrived, Hirohito and MacArthur had an audience, and somebody made a photograph, and MacArthur ordered that this photograph be published all over Japan in every village. And it had an incredible, it was called the photograph of the century. Hirohito does not look like a god. Just an average guy. MacArthur said, that's what we need to, to, to uh, communicate to people. So I, I, I say this, you live out your worldview. 17 million dead. 17 million. So, so the first thing we say is we believe that all men are worthy of respect and Christian love. And all men are made in the image of God in spite of their ethnicity, their gender, their socioeconomic standing. All people are worthy of respect and Christian love. Therefore, therefore, we hold up the dignity of man. Therefore, we oppose racism or any type of anything that, that, that denigrates the glory and the beauty and the wonder of man made in the image of God. Therefore, we support the Low Country Pregnancy Center gladly who pleads for the sanctity of life in the womb. Therefore, we, we love and affirm the adoption of children from all over the world to give them a, a hope and a family of continuity and love. Therefore, we, we plead with government officials to, to have laws that will protect individuals. It's amazing to me that we, the most God-blessed country in Western, Western culture, arguably, but I think we are, we have the most liberal abortion laws. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And so we plead with our, our, our governing officials. You see, you live out your worldview. Men and, worth, men and women are worthy of respect and Christian love. They need to hear the gospel. The second thing, very quickly, is the family. We believe the family is God's idea and that God instituted the family. That God said it's not good for the man to be alone. Therefore, God gave Adam to Eve and Eve to Adam. And for this reason, the man will leave his father and mother. And cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And we believe children are a heritage from the Lord. We believe the family. There's been a recent book released entitled Families and Faith, How Religion is Passed Down from Generation to Generation by a man named Bern Bingston. Dr. Bingston is the professor emeritus of gerontology and sociology and the research a professor of social work at Southern California University. So he's not writing this from the second floor of East Cooper Baptist Church. I mean, he's a, he's a board certified. I mean, he's, he's a credentialed academic guy. 
And so Dr. Bingston, who's professor, this professor emeritus, conducted from 1970 to 2005, 35 years. He had what he called the longitudinal study of generations, and he made the following discussion or uh, discoveries. He said that in spite of what you've heard, counterintuitive to the news that's being passed around, that religious beliefs or lack thereof is passed from generation to generation by primarily the parents. He said that we live linked lives as families, which are social networks that include parents and even grandparents. He examined seven generations that spanned 100 years, and he made some incredible observations. He, he said that in the Mormon tradition, in conservative Jewish circles, and in evangelical Christianity, that there's a high rate of children going back to the faith, Higher, highest in Mormonism, then conservative Jews, and then us. But he made, he made two observations, two huge observations. One is this, parental warmth matters. Love your kids. Love your kids. Let your kids know that they're loved. Embrace them. Laugh with them. Just love your children. And then he found out that, that, that the number one component in setting the pace and in t determining the, the, the trajectory of the family and, and being the person who just forges it, the number one factor is the father. The father. Dads. Therefore, we have men's ministries. Therefore, we say men should be servant leaders who lead and serve and guide and walk around with a wash basin and a towel like Jesus did. And they take the bullet. Somebody has to take the bullet. They live sacrificial lives. They cherish their wives. They, they embrace their kids. And here's a statistic. To me, this is the most daunting statistic. The most daunting statistic. Uh, that I've read recently. In 1965, when the war on... Social advancement began by President Johnson. Uh, six to seven percent of all children were born out of wedlock. That should be 2012. 2012, uh, 65 was eight years before uh, Roe v. Wade. We have 1.3 to 1.6 million abortions a year in this country, most of them for birth control. The vast majority. So, so I don't even have to figure that in, but and now, listen, church, 42% of all children are born out of wedlock in America. That's a disaster. That's a train wreck. You can go to large pockets of America, children don't even know who their father is. So, so what, what do we do? Here's what we do. We have age-stage ministries here. We have a children's ministry. It's not a babysitting service. It is to encourage parents and to walk beside parents and to be shoulder to shoulder with parents to nurture children in the way of Christ. We have middle school and high school and college and campus outreach ministries to do that. We have a Christian school here that, that is, teaches a Christian world and life view. They read literature and physics and biology under, under, under the, 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 the glorious lordship of Christ. It's not the only option for parents, but it's an option we want to give our community. We, we, we live with a type of intentionality as unto God, and we say the family matters. And we uphold the dignity and the hope of marriage. 
the marriage is a covenant with God. And that you love and you care and you serve and you cherish and you hang in there as you worship Christ. That's what we do. Very quickly, thirdly, incarceration. This is from the Boston Globe. Boston Globe. It's from a guy named Jeff Jacoby, written two months ago. That's what he says. Let me just read, just read part of his editorial to you. The, the United States jails more prisoners than any nation on earth. About 2.3 million or 1% of all American adults, says Jeff Jacoby. The sheer size of the prison population is often called a national disgrace. But what is the alternative? A new federal study of recidivism or rearresting based on 405,000 inmates found that after three years, 68% have been arrested for a new crime. And within five years, it's 77%. Within five years, 77% are back in prison. Only 39% of the new arrests involve drug crimes, and most involved either property crimes such as burglary and robbery or violent offenses such as assault, rape, and murder. For decades, well-meaning advocates have pushed for rehabilitation programs and other reforms that would reduce recidivism rates, but the holy grail remains elusive. Deeply troubled, dysfunctional people are not easily transformed into pro productive law-abiding citizens by prison or by any other institution, he writes. So, so 77%. So, so what, what do we do? Do we just say, there's no hope? Everything's falling apart? What do we do? No, this is what we do. We have a group of people that leave this church every Monday night and at least four or five weekends a year, and they go to prison, and they preach Christ, and they lift up the power of the gospel. They, Jimmy Stewart and his group have been doing this for 27 years. 27 years. In addition to that, that's amazing to me. They go to death row. They go, let me show you this program. It's called the High Touch Ministry. High Touch Ministry is uh, a seven-segment, 58 part Bible study that's pretty exhaustive, that, that we invite inmates from Tennessee and Texas and Georgia and South Carolina and a couple other states to participate in, most of from South Carolina. And we have a, a group of about 60 people that correspond and send the test out and grade them and, and send them cards and letters. Many of these men are on death row. And, and it takes 18 months working full-time to get this degree. And listen, the degree is a Bible with your name inscribed on it. That's the degree. It's, it's amazing. And, and to date, we've had 6,300 men start it. We've had 176 completed because it's very exhaustive. We have 400 currently involved. And each month, this same group is, is a group of people that come here in this little church now, this, this little church, and, and they, they, they send out 50 to 80 birthday letters and personal messages by mail every month. That's what we do. That's who we are. You see, this, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, has a, a, a corporate dimension. We're called to be priests and servants before God to make a difference. We're called to love the Lord with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength in such a way that we make a difference. And these people are. That's just 
a snapshot of a few things. Our worldview determines the way we live. As you go, take the gospel of Christ out with passion. And may the Lord use us to storm the gates of hell. To storm the gates of hell. Listen, repent of pessimism. I know people that are just, they say, well, we have no hope. You can never say that. You can never say that. Because God is God. And God can do something enormous right now, this hour, or he can do it steadily and slowly over a process of years. But God is God. So we go forward. We take the gospel to unreached people groups. I've said this before, and I don't want to be offensive to people, but I'm getting old, and so are you. All of you are getting older. I say to people, I promise you that I I am not going to sit around and talk about my bodily functions as I get old. I don't care about your bodily functions. You know, you're going to atrophy. You're going to die. You're going to have to be tacked up and sewn together. That's life. I want to talk about the next generation. I want to talk about unreached people groups. I want to talk about taking the gospel out. I want to talk about impacting our culture in the name of Jesus with the power of the word of God through the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit. That's what I want to talk about. That's what we breathe for. That's what we exist. Heaven awaits. I was talking to somebody the other day, and they're, they're going out to a hard place, hard place. And their calling is no more wonderful than your calling to be where you are. But they're going to a hard place where this person said, you know, I, 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 there are very few friendships. It's just the only time we get to worship is around a, a computer where we're live streaming a sermon or something. It's just hard. And she said, I miss my friends. But then she smiles and she says, but you know what? We have heaven. I said, amen. Amen. That's it. Let's pray. So Lord, thank you for this day and uh, thank you for your incredible faithfulness to us. Thank you for 40 years. uh, These people that just stood have just served. They just served. Uh, help us to be people who put our hand to the plow and who do not, do not look back. And Lord, help us to, to know how to honor and glorify you by our um, giftedness and our callings. Uh, thank you that we are to stand up over our homes and other places and say there's not a square inch of all creation where Christ is not central and over which he does not cry, this is mine. So, Lord, we want to cry that today. May your name go forth with power and majesty in Jesus' name. Amen.